Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you. And there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey friends, open your Bibles to the book of 2 John. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can open up the YouVersion app, or it's also called the Bible app, and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is that you're watching us from, I love you, and I am so glad that you are a part of our family. I love postcards, especially vintage ones. Sometimes when I see a box of them at a garage sale or an antique store, I like to flip through them and then read the back. There's a history to them, a nostalgia, a certain intrigue and mystery. Like, why were they there? What was their favorite part of the trip? They're a little window into a major moment in people's lives, a trip they'd planned and prepared for. They'd saved, they'd researched. I mean, this is before the internet, before you could just Google places or read reviews. They went to the local AAA office to get maps or to their local travel agent so that they could get brochures. They went to the bookstore and they bought the Rick Steves guide to wherever it is they wanted to go. And then after all that buildup and preparation, once they'd arrived at their destination, they bought a little four by six card with whatever picture they thought would make the recipient smile the most. And they, they wrote something that they thought was significant about their trip to that point. Like, dear Sally, Mount Rushmore is even more breathtaking than I could have even imagined. I can barely resist the temptation to burst out in Lee Greenwood's, I'm proud to be an American. I feel like there's eagles everywhere. It's the most patriotic place on earth, or, or, dear Jimmy, you won't even be able to believe this. They don't even sell pizza at the Leaning Tower. Turns out it's just a crooked old building. Postcards, they're windows, they're a snapshot. To the casual observer or to an outsider like me with no background or context who has no relationship to the person who wrote it, they don't tell us very much. They're just a glimpse. We haven't been part of the buildup. We haven't been part of the background leading up to the trip. We don't know that her grandmother emigrated from there or that it was his dad's dying wish to see that place, but he never actually even got the opportunity to go there. For the outsider, they show us a picture of a place that caused that person to think of the person that they sent the card to. It's It's the highlight of a place that they were. It's an Empire State Building or Statue of Liberty in New York, a Space Needle in Seattle, an arch in St. Louis, or the world's largest frying pan in Brandon, Iowa. And we all know that there's far more to those places than that postcard can show. I mean, except Brandon. There's nothing else in Brandon, Iowa, other than the world's largest frying pan. But we all know that there's more to that snapshot than the card can show. And and there's just a little room to write. You, You can't say much in the space of a postcard, unless your recipient knows the context, unless they know the background, then you don't have to waste words. And that's what we wanna do in this series. We wanna take these postcards from heaven, these five single chapter biblical books and and help you with the background, help you with the context, help you fill in the gaps. And I wanna start today with a message we're calling a postcard to a woman and her kids. Let's pray. God, we love you. 
We're grateful to you, love you so much. You're the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. And so today, we give everything that we've got as an homage to everything that you've given. God, today we pray that our hearts and our minds would be changed, that we would be adjusted. Help us see you differently. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so the Bible, interestingly, includes these five single chapter books, and they're so often overlooked. They're so often ignored. I mean, to me, if you're an achiever, these should be the first five books that you read. It's like just a short amount of time, and you're able to say, boom, I've just read five entire books of the Bible. And I mean, they're not insignificant. They're not fluff. They're full of really impactful stuff. They look like they're postcards. They look like they're these little notes. But when you know what's behind them, they say so much. Like, like this one that we're talking about today. It had less than 300 words in the original language, but it's so important. It's so foundational both to the church and to us as Jesus people. And when you read it, it's amazing how relevant it is to our day and age. It's, it's like it was plucked from the newspaper of today or from Apple News. And John doesn't identify himself as the author. He just refers to himself as the elder, which could have referred to his age or it could have referred to his position. I think in this case, it probably meant both. He was both older and he was a spiritual overseer of this as well as a number of other churches. However, we know that the author was John because the style of the writing so clearly aligns with the writing of his other stuff, like the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, and both 1st and 3rd John. So 2nd John is obviously a part of this little set of letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so you have 1st John, where, where John identifies and deals with a specific problem, and that's false teachers, people called Gnostics. And these were people who believed that humans were merely divine souls trapped in the ordinary physical world. They taught that the, that the world was made by an imperfect spirit and that that imperfect spirit was the God of Abraham. They believed two predominant things about Jesus, that either Jesus didn't actually come in human form but was just a demigod who appeared in human form, or that Jesus achieved his deity at his baptism by John the Baptist by attaining enlightenment through gnosis or through knowledge, and that he taught his disciples to do the exact same thing. So John addresses that in 1 John. Then in 2 and 3 John, he highlights specific situations that he'd already addressed in 1 John to specific people he knew would have already read that letter. So you really need to read number one to be able to fully grasp number two and three. Skipping over number one would kind of be like watching Godfather 2 without ever watching The Godfather. Still a good movie, it'd still be enjoyable, but there'd be parts that would fall through the cracks, little details, little nuances that you would miss. So, so John writes this postcard. It's, it's just a sheet of paper, just 13 verses to a specific someone. And he's saying, I didn't really even want to write this. And I didn't want to write it because like, I'm coming to see you soon. And I was, I was hoping that we could work these things out then, but, but it's become enough of an issue. It's become enough of a problem that I'm sending this quick note just to get your attention, just to get your antenna up. And I'll say more when I get there, but for now, this. And he folded the paper and he sent it from Patmos, the island of his exile, his, the island of his captivity, and he sent it to the church in Ephesus. And he doesn't 
specifically say who the recipient was. It was just addressed to a woman and her kids. And, and this is the only letter in the New Testament that was written specifically to a woman. And it appears that she may have written him first, that she may have written the Apostle John to ask his opinion about a specific problem that she and her church were encountering. And, and I've never read this anywhere, and I, I can't substantiate this, but I actually think, I wonder if this letter was written to Priscilla, who was left in charge of the church at Ephesus. She would have received the letter sometime around 85 AD, about 20 years after her mentor, the apostle Paul, had been murdered for his faith. And she finds herself leading this church, but she's encountering these false teachers, guys who'd come to town teaching Gnosticism. And she's wrestling with how to deal with these dudes, with whether she was supposed to welcome them into her home or not. And, and in those days, of course, the New Testament wasn't available as it is to us, so, so the leaders of local churches were dependent upon certain men, prophets, guys who went from place to place preaching the truth. And they spoke what's called ex cathedra, and that means from the chair or from the throne. It literally, in this case, means from God's throne to your ears. And so it was the obligation of the local church to house and feed these traveling speakers. So members of the church actually kept rooms in their homes specifically set aside for the prophets or the preachers. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. But, but evidently, this woman, the recipient of this letter, she'd heard these men teaching principles that were contrary to what Jesus and Paul had taught. And so she started wrestling with her responsibility of hospitality. I mean, she understood that Jesus had taught that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we need to do unto others as we want done unto ourselves. And so not knowing quite what to do, she seeks John's counsel. And this letter, these 13 verses, they're his response to her question. And there's two words that really sum up his response, and that's truth and love. Watch this. This letter's from the elder. I'm writing to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace, which comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. How happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father had commanded. I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. And this isn't a new commandment. It's one we've had from the beginning. Love means doing what God's commanded us, and he's commanded us to love one another just as you've heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out that you don't lose what we've worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent so that you'll receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God, but anyone who remains in the teaching of Jesus has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and they don't teach the truth about Jesus, don't invite that person into your home. Don't give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. I've got a lot more to say, but I don't wanna do it with paper and ink. I hope to visit you soon, and I wanna talk with you face to face, and then our joy, it's gonna be complete. Greetings from the children of your sister, chosen by God. Truth and love. It's what should be the characteristic of every Christian. And it echoes what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, that Christians should learn to speak the truth in love. And one of the most remarkable, one of the most difficult works 
within our Christian life is to hold these often opposing things together and keep them in balance. But unfortunately, many of us emphasize one at the expense of the other. Like we might emphasize truth by centering on doctrinal issues. We may insist that the scriptures be followed carefully, but we do that at the expense of love. And, and when we do that, we're rigid, we're cold, we're judgmental, sometimes even cruel in the way that we say things. And so even though what we say is exactly right, we end up trying to defend the truth at the expense of love. But you know, my pastor used to say, you can say anything you want to people as long as you say it in love. Then on the other hand, there are those of us who make the mistake of emphasizing love at the expense of truth. And that leaves the impression that we should accept everyone, that we should accept everything. And in that, too many of us become tolerant in every direction. So the problem that we're presented with is not being able to have one without the other. You can't have truth without love, and you can't have love without truth. And so we need to speak the truth in love. And we need people in our lives who love us enough to do the same thing for us. For example, Pastor Sonny and I, we have a friend named Hyland, and he's this brilliant messianic rabbi. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Sonny and Pastor Becky were meeting with him. And, and he said something in that conversation that Pastor Sonny told me about that really, frankly, shocked me. It was so bold and authoritative, so definitive and absolute. He said, there's no separating yoga from the demonic. Every pose, no matter what you call it, is opening you up to a chakra. And guys, a chakra can't be separated from Hinduism. What it means is a chakra is a spiritual opening and it's not to the right spirit. And you know what? I don't like what my friend Highland said. I don't like that because I love yoga. I love how it loosens up my limbs. I love how yoga makes me feel. And so because of that, I can fight that. I can fight him or I can receive that and I can research that. Like I can reject his truth, but in doing that, I also have to reject his love because the only reason he even said it is because he loved us. And guys, I think we need to redefine our view of love. Love needs boundaries. Think about it like the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River is beautiful, flowing 2,318 miles from Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico. It is magnificent, majestic, but it can also be maleficent. So, so it needs borders. It needs boundaries. And if it leaves its borders, if it leaves its boundaries, destruction happens. Cities are flooded, homes are destroyed, disease and bacteria are spread, lives are lost. The river has to stay within its boundaries because if it doesn't, it becomes a thing of destruction. Love is like that. Love without boundaries can cause great harm. In the name of loving sinners, we can go too far to the point that we tolerate, accept, even justify sin. But love should move people from death to life. And this postcard called Second John, it gives us two boundaries, truth and discernment. False teachers were going from town to town, church to church, teaching a false, harmful, dangerous gospel. And in the name of love, members of those churches were inviting those dudes into their homes. And guys, you need to be careful what you're inviting into your home. And so John writes this letter to this friend who didn't have the right limits on her love. 
This letter, as short as it already is, can be further condensed into just a few words. Make sure your love has limits. That's the theme of 2 John. Isn't that totally relevant today in a culture that's trying to blend all beliefs together in the name of love? But if you open yourself up to every religious practice, every religious principle and doctrine, you are in for destruction. And this doesn't contradict our message last week about extravagant love, because you can't have love without truth. So John links truth with love. I mean, just in the introduction, just in the first four verses, he mentions truth five times because love without truth is dangerous. I mean, every cult I've ever heard of promotes love. They envelop you with love and affection and support. So John says, hey, let's love. Like, I'm all for love. But let's let it run free within its limitations. Let's love with discernment. And so I wonder how keen is your discernment? How careful are you to listen for the truth as set forth in Scripture? This woman, she'd opened her heart, she'd opened her home to whoever, and in the process, it was hurting her. It was hurting her church. So John says, your love needs to be brought into its proper boundaries. Otherwise, it's not love at all. It's just an indiscriminate gush of feelings. If you're in a committed relationship, for example, do you just indiscriminately give yourself and give your love over to any guy or girl who comes along and gives you attention? I certainly hope not. In fact, the more deeply committed a relationship you're in, the more discerning you should be of the type of guys or girls you even allow yourself to be around. Because not every guy or girl has your good intentions in mind. Not every guy or girl has your best interests in mind. So you need to set limits on your relationships. That's what John is saying to this woman here. And in verse seven, he gives the reason. There's many deceivers who've gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus even came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. I mean, talk about a contemporary message. This is everywhere today. This, this is totally true in our culture. And so we have to put banks, boundaries around our love, truth, and discernment, and I understand that that can be difficult. Like, how do you know what truth to border your love with? And, and so with that in mind, I thought that I would come up with a little list of things that are unbending truths for us as Jesus people according to the scriptures. We'll call these the fundamentals of our faith. There's seven things, and these are things that I want you to keep these in your memory bank, keep them close so that you can refer back to them as often as you need to. Okay, here's the first, the inerrancy of Scripture. Scripture is without error. It is without fault. It is inerrant. That cannot sway. Number two, the virgin birth and deity of Jesus. Without this, we don't have a sinless Savior. We just have another sinner on a cross. Number three, the sinless life of Jesus. And the apostle Peter said, Jesus, who suffered for us, left us an example. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And guile means deception. And so not even in thought did Jesus sin. One of the fundamentals of our faith is the sinless life of Jesus. Number four is the substitutionary death. And that means when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute for all sinners, including you, including me. So God took the sin of those who knew sin and he placed them on the one who knew no sin. And as our substitute, the one who knew no sin died in our place. 
Number five, the efficacy of the blood, or you could say it like this, the effectiveness or the power of Jesus' blood to cleanse us of our sins, that his blood was a divine detergent. Number six, the bodily resurrection from the grave. And we say bodily because some false religions will suggest that it was just his spirit that was resurrected. But the miracle of the bodily resurrection in glorified form is a tenet of our faith. Finally, number seven, his ascension into heaven and eventual bodily return to earth. He has gone to prepare a place for you and he's coming back for you to take you to the place that he's prepared for you. And so John says, there's these teachers and they don't even acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. They are deceivers. And there are so many faiths today who won't openly speak against these things. They just won't acknowledge them. For example, Unitarianism says that there's one supreme being, but they'll never declare him to be the Lord Jesus. Christian science says that he's a divine idea, but he's not a deity. He's not the son of God. Spiritism, which is super popular right now, says that he's a medium, but he's not the mediator. Mormonism says he took a body at incarnation and he became a man, a great man, but he's not the son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus isn't equal with God, that he was created by God, but isn't coexistent with God. And many of these groups, they feign as if they believe the same as we do by simply not acknowledging that they don't. And they are masters of propaganda, incredible salespeople. They're trained to know how to get into your home and into your heart. And they feed on churches like ours, churches that are growing, thriving, and on the move. They're counting on the fact that you are simply a consumer Christian who hasn't taken the time to digest the scriptures for yourselves. They're counting on the fact that you're undiscerning. They're counting on the fact that you believe so much in love that you haven't thought of the need for boundaries like truth or discernment. Just love me, they say. Just listen to me. Can't we all just get along? Or here's one. In the end, I mean, don't we all serve the same God? No, we don't. I mean, listen to this old newspaper ad I found. What should children be taught in Sunday school? That God created the world in six days, that man isn't a creature of evolution, that Jesus was virgin born, did miracles, and was literally raised from the dead, that Jesus may come down from the sky just any day now, that only those who believe such assertions with all their hearts are saved, while everyone else will burn forever in hell, or that creation should be studied from all the world's religious views, plus the views of modern science, that man has evolved from a wonderful evolutionary process and is part of the product of nature, that Jesus was most likely a good man who taught many good things and like many of the religious leaders of the day, had myths invented about him by his followers, that religion should deal in the here and now with complete trust in the forces that brought us into existence without a morbid fear of death. If you agree with us in teaching our children a broad, free view of religion, come visit us at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. And so John says, there are many deceivers, but guys, they're not all as obvious as that newspaper ad. And so we have to look for truth and use discernment. We have to study and filter them through the filters of the fundamentals of our faith. And progressive people, which there are many in our day, will say, bro, just loosen up. Cut those roots that you've wrapped around Jesus. There's a world in need. We have to love them. Let's just love one another. 
And I go, cut the roots you've wrapped around Jesus. Are you kidding me? I mean, Jesus loved people. We know that. But he wasn't a hippie. Like, he was a revolutionary. He wasn't John Lennon singing Imagine All the People. He was Jesus, who loved people enough to look at his homeboy, Peter, and say, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance unto me. And John warns against this kind of approach and attitude in verse 9. He says, anyone who wanders away from Jesus' teaching has no relationship with God. A belief, no matter how sincere, that doesn't pass freely through the filter of the fundamentals of our faith isn't of God. Just because it's interesting doesn't mean it's true. And John says, anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. We have to be on guard, like all the time. I had had a person approach me in the parking lot of the Home Depot a couple of weeks ago, and and they just asked, can I pray for you? And, And I could see that he had some pamphlets in his hand. And to be clear, it wasn't the first time that had happened. A few days before, a different person approached me in the same parking lot and asked me the same question. Can I pray for you? And, and the first time, I was kind of in a bit of a hurry. Plus, I kind of felt the Holy Spirit say to me, don't do it. They're not carrying the same spirit as you. So I just said, no, thanks. I'm good. And I kept walking. The second time, though, I wasn't in any hurry at all. Plus, I was feeling a little bit frisky. So I said, nope, you don't pray to the same God I pray to, which sounds rude, right? Or does it sound loving? See, I agree with Jesus. I don't want anyone to perish. I want everyone to come to repentance. So I couldn't placate to this dude. And so when they pushed back and said, yeah, we do. I said, oh, really? What what church are you part of? They said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I said, hmm, well, no matter what your overseers told you, we do not pray to the same God. And in my mind, I thought, well, Sean, if you're feeling froggy, jump. So I just kept pushing. And I asked them some filtering questions based on the fundamentals of our faith. I asked, do you believe the Bible's full and complete? That Jesus is the incarnate God, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, but took on all your sin and shame and died in your place, that his blood covers all your sins, past, present, and future, that he experienced a bodily resurrection and ascension into heaven and will subsequently return to the earth to retrieve us and reign forever? Dude was kind of shell-shocked. And he looked at me and said, well, I believe most of that. I believe Jesus was a God, but not equal with God. And I agree that Jesus was resurrected, but it was his spirit that was resurrected, not his body, because his body was defiled. I said, right, like I said, we don't pray to the same God. So bro, I don't want you praying for me any more than you or your overseer want me praying for you. Matter of fact, can I pray for you? Bro was like, "Uh, I don't think so. And with that, he just walked away. And you might wonder, why would I do that? And that's simple, because I loved him. And I can almost guarantee you that no one has ever responded to him like that. And I hope that it made him question that conversation, that it made him examine his approach and his beliefs, because I'm trying to have my love flow through the boundaries of truth and discernment. And because anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Anyone who welcomes them hasn't set a limit on their love. In fact, I'd say anyone who just welcomes them hasn't actually loved them at all. They've just shown them an indiscriminate gush of feelings. Like imagine if your loved one was sick and and you had a friend who was a doctor, so you took your loved one to your friend who ran all the tests and scans and when the results came back, he saw a mass and he knew from the look of it that it was dangerous. But in the process, he said to himself, ah, man, I've been a friend of this family for so long. I just can't tell them this. So he comes back and he looks at your loved one and says, you're fine, no problem, nothing showed up, all clear. I mean, would you appreciate that? 
Does he love your family because he held back the truth? No. The man who loves you the most tells you the truth. He holds nothing back because you can say anything you want to people as long as you say it in love. But there's a method. And John talks about it in verse 12. He says, I've got much that I want to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. What's the method? It's not a social media post. It's not with a sign in front of a clinic. It's one-on-one, face-to-face. And when you do that, the truth will bring you joy. Because the Proverbs tell us, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in good season, how good it is. That's extravagant love. A love that's bordered by truth and discernment. That says, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. I wanna love people like that And that's how I want people to love me. So after all of that, all of that information and all of that background, let me leave you with something practical, just some steps. Let me leave you with three truths to keep your love within the proper boundaries. Number one, love cannot exist without truth. Number two, discernment is essential to life and happiness. Number three, staying balanced is equally important. And so I wonder today, will you reevaluate your love Will you redefine it and let it flow between the boundaries of truth and discernment? I hope so, because if you will, you'll be showing real love and not just an indiscriminate gush of feelings. Would you close your eyes? Maybe you're watching this and you would say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you thought you did, but in this process and through these fundamental truths, you realize that maybe you didn't. I wanna give you the opportunity to change that. And so, if you're watching this and you say, Sean, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I I want to, then I'm gonna give you the chance to do that. In just a minute, I'm gonna ask you to repeat a prayer after me, and if you repeat those words that I say and you mean them in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. You know, salvation really is just Jesus saying, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. And so if you're watching this and you say, Sean, I wanna receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, would you repeat these words after me? Just say, Jesus, I love you. I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Come into my life, change me, make me different, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, I would love the opportunity to connect with you. So will you reach out to us? We send us a message, a little note that lets us know that you did that and we'll, we'll follow up with you and help you in the next step of your Jesus journey, the journey from where you are to where God wants you to be. But we're not done. Maybe you're watching this, you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy, I'm a Jesus girl, I'm a Christian. But you'd say, maybe it's time for me to redefine my love. Maybe it's time for me to put it in the right boundaries. If that's you, can I pray for you? God, for my friends who who are desperately trying to love, but somewhere along the line, love became so touchy-feely for them. It became just an indiscriminate gush of feelings. God, help them, encourage them, point out where they need to put boundaries and where they need to bring the reins in. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today. 